How do you build a life where you are excited to wake up in the morning, become excellent at what you do and create the greatest possible good for yourself, others and the world? That's our guiding question on The Masses Journey. Hey my friend, my name is Lucas Kramer, high performance coach, co-founder and your host on the Masses Journey podcast where we have conversations with present and future masters of life and business to share with you how they found their path in life, the real challenges they have had to overcome and how they did it and what strategies, practices and questions you can implement in your own life to follow in their footsteps. And my guest today is a man whose book and work has deeply impacted my life. And I hope the same will happen for you. It's an absolute honor to be introducing you to Sean Eskinosi. In 2006, Sean left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean to bar chocolate factory and never look back. His company, Eskinosi Chocolate, was recently named by Forbes one of the 25 best small companies in America. So far, the company has provided over a million school lunches to malnourished children in Tanzania and the Philippines without any donations. Founded at the forefront of the American craft chocolate revolution and regarded by many as a vanguard in the industry. Sean was named by O, the Oprah magazine, one of 15 guys who are saving the world. He's received two honorary doctorates and given a popular TEDx talk. Sean's book, co-written with his daughter Lauren, published by Penguin Random House, titled Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul, is an Amazon number one bestseller. He is a family brother at Assumption Abbey, a Trappist monastery near Ava, Missouri, and the co-founder of Lost and Found, a grief center now in its 20th year, serving children and families in Southwest Missouri. During our conversation, among many other highlights, Sean and I talk about how he defines meaningful work and success in entrepreneurship, the persuasion principles that have helped Sean to never lose a jury trial during his career as a criminal defense lawyer and how he's been applying these skills while building Eskinosi chocolate. Why your deepest sorrows will likely be the source of your greatest joy and contributions. And I also ask him a very personal question about mediating between having huge ambitions and defining enough. This has truly been one of the most engaging conversations of my life so far. And Sean is a master of painting vivid images and metaphors with his words to support you along your journey of discovering and doing meaningful work. So without further ado, please enjoy this extraordinary conversation with Sean Eskinosi. Hey, my friend, welcome to a very special episode of the Masses Journey podcast, because today we get to talk to a man 
who's really made a huge difference in my life and who continues to do so through his work, the person that he is, and through the book that he wrote. So let's welcome Sean Eskinosi. Sean, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to talk with you. That is so awesome. And I have to tell you, when I read the title of your book, and it's called Meaningful Work, subtitle, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul, I just immediately knew that I had to get this book. It just called to me, basically. And Seth Godin said about it, this is a groundbreaking book, a book that will change how you see the world. And I can tell you from personal experience that to me, reading this book has been a real respite in all of the pressure and all of the weirdness in the world and all of the storms and expectations of the world. So the first question that I wanted to ask you was, when did you realize that this book needed to be written and what gave you that insight? The, uh, throughout my career, periodically, people would say, oh, you should write a book. And um, I've really resisted that. Um, and I, I've had some opportunities to write books in my previous career as a lawyer, and I didn't do it. And um, I, <clears throat> and then as I entered the chocolate career, I resisted this notion. And in particular, my, my spiritual director at the monastery where I go, uh, Trappist Monastery, near my home, about an hour and a half from my home, Springfield, Missouri. He is 91. And uh, he, I've always uh, admired him. And uh, I have asked him over the years to write a book. And he told me that, um, he told me, he said, you know, my calling is to live the life, not write about it. And he wasn't telling me to do that, but it really struck a chord with me. And so I really, uh, I, I liked that idea. And mm -hmm. so it kept me from writing a book until one thing led to another and someone introduced me to a, a really good literary agent and, and she liked the idea of a project. And then it took three years to write the book. Um, and uh, it was hard. It was, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things in my life and it's one of the hardest things I've, I've ever done. I can't imagine. And I'm so happy you mm -hmm. did. Well, thank you. <laughs> I know you did write a whole book about it, but just at the start of this, could you talk to us about how you define meaningful work and success as an entrepreneur? The, this notion of meaningful work or fulfillment uh, in, in our, in our work day, in our work life, um, I think is a very individual, um, notion. And I think it's really important for, um, there to be a sort of deconstruction of what we think our career or next career move or next job should be based on what the culture is telling us or friends or anyone in our circle. Um, and I think the reason it's important to deconstruct that is so that we can have the, the space emotionally 
to consider alternatives that might not be um, expected, um, but that we might find individually to be very meaningful and fulfilling. And it's also important to note that this connection, this, this kind of plugging, you know, two ends of the electrical cord together um, is, it's hard to find. It's, it can be uncomfortable in, in the process, but I, but I would say that it depends very, very um, much on the unique individual. And so for each person, they will have meaningful work in their lives. And by the way, I should say that it's not dependent on the title of the job or some prestige because that will wear off. It really has to do in many ways with the attitude and approach that one takes to the job um, and how they view it. And um, if they let themselves feel this, this emotion of fulfillment and meaning, if they, if they allow that gate to open in their lives, um, they will experience it. And it may not last forever. And then we, we put ourselves on this path once again. And we're not, we don't, we're not um, hard on ourselves because this path that we find, where we find meaning, um, you know, seems to have an end to it. That's okay. Because in this day and age, it can, uh, and, and we should be prepared for that to, to let it go, lay it down and move to the next thing. How I define success, well, um, we can this we could talk about this for a long time. Um, <laughs> I and um, I, I think it's I think it's in many ways absolutely overlaid and connected to the first part of your question, um, which is um, this I, this idea of meaningful work, fulfillment at work, um, a sort of lifted spirit during the work day. And that is success to me. That is success. So if you, um, if you are at work and you sometime at work, something happens, you do something, someone's talking to you and you have this feeling of, wow, it's, it's, you know, I, I don't know that it's going to get any better than what just happened. I, I just don't know if it's going to get any better. This is it. If you have that feeling, then you've, you've tasted success. Yeah. It, it doesn't last in many ways. It's, it's, it's kind of akin to the sort of Maslow peak experience notion. We touch it, um, we feel it. And then our responsibility is to then integrate that moment into the rest of our humdrum lives. Um, and, that is to me, that is success. That's it's a success that will never die. It's a success that we will um, be able to carry forever. No one can take it away from us, no matter what happens to the business or the job or it, it will, it will endure forever. 
That is so powerful. And Sean, just as you were mentioning, this is just a great lens also as I'm seeing it to see your story through as we're gonna get into this conversation to really know how individual the definition is. And with that, I would love to jump into your story. People have already heard that your first part of the career was as a really successful criminal defense lawyer. And the first thing that cued me in when you were sharing that was kind of also based on my being as the high performance coach. The question, since you never lost a trial, as I understood that correctly, jury trial, what was, yeah, since I, since I read that, I just was asking myself, what lessons did you learn about persuasion, telling persuasive stories that helped you get there? And the reason that I'm asking this also is because as people will learn more about your story, it also seems like these skills that you've developed in that past career were actually essential in building Askinosie Chocolate for you too. Well, thank you for recognizing that. I appreciate it. Um, I don't often get that, but I, but it's the truth. And so thank you. Um, the, the challenge of a, of a criminal defense lawyer in persuading judge or jury, especially a jury, is that um, if you make it to a jury trial and you're a defendant accused of anything, you are not presumed innocent. Yes, of course, that's the American legal system, but that's not the truth. The reality is everyone thinks you're guilty. Why? Because you were arrested or you're in jail or, you know, tens, if not hundreds of police investigators developed a case against you and someone thought you were guilty. So you must be guilty. Well, imagine beginning from that, you know, deficit. Uh, you, your, your work is really cut out for you as a lawyer um, to overcome that deficit and sort of crawl out of that hole, you know, inch by inch. And um, one of the things that I learned is, um, uh, is to seek the help of others. So as a young lawyer, I had a really big ego. I still do. Um, and but I was, I was astute enough to recognize that I needed help and that I needed to collaborate with people who knew a lot more than I did. And so I routinely sought the help of experts and lawyers that didn't even know me. I just sought them out. But they, these were famous lawyers in America that you read about. Mm -hmm. And I would call them or you know, write a letter, which is back in the days when people did that and say, would you please help me? And uh, one in particular, very famous lawyer, maybe, maybe one of the most famous criminal defense lawyers in America, his name is Jerry Spence. He's quite old now, still alive, but he actually helped me. And, and one of the things that I learned from him that I did use as a trial lawyer is to think of yourself more as a teacher, not a persuader. And he taught me to, in the beginning of the story, in the beginning of the case, to admit all of the weaknesses of my case. So in other words, to just say it and get it out there, 
uh, and, and just and, and to be honest and transparent with the jury and say, these are the things that I'm afraid that you'll um, listen to and won't listen to anything else. And I listed them off. These are the you know 10 things that I'm afraid of. That's, and that's a very unusual position for a lawyer to take. It's a very vulnerable position for a lawyer to take in front of a jury and say, he did, a, you know, he or she did a lot of bad things and a lot of wrong things. And here they mm -hmm. are. And I'm afraid you won't listen after that, but I hope you do. And you build a trust with the jury. And this trust relationship is built, you know, brick by brick over time in a jury trial. And um, I think that I've, I've um, moved some of those lessons into the story of Eskenosi chocolate, not about, well, here are the bad things, but here's what we do transparently. Here's who we are. Here's how much we pay farmers. Uh, and we want to build this trust relationship with our customers over time. And, um, you know, this is just one example of the many things that I, or skills, I should say, that I developed as a lawyer especially as a storyteller um, that I use now um, to this day. And it's, it's, I think it has served us well. Yeah. I feel like it's also one of the reasons why I just connected with you through the book, what you just shared about here's who we are. This is it. This is mm -hmm. where we open up space for the connection. And I can also underline what you shared in just bringing up kind of the negatives that other people might be perceiving for them. Mm -hmm. I know that kind of as being the young entrepreneur where many people obviously would also go like, okay, does he know his stuff? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And by pointing that out first too, I just noticed exactly what you had shared, that this is where we open the conversation up. Yeah. And just, you know, like I said, I can't emphasize enough the importance um, of just asking for help. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's quite powerful, you know, um, and it, it's, but for some entrepreneurs, it's, it's, um, they incorrectly b believe that seeking help is somehow showing weakness. But it's, it's, it's the way we learn. One of the main ways that we can learn is by getting help from other people. Definitely underlining that double, triple. And many people who are listening to this might not know your story yet. They might ask themselves, you know, if he's such a successful lawyer and he's got all these skills, how come it wasn't his calling his vocation? Could you talk to us a little bit about the moments that made you realize that you had to transition out of law? As I was saying in the outset of the conversation, we can, um, we can have, we can go through our professional life, our career and have more than one vocation. And it's okay. It's okay to be aware that this thing that I did love is slipping away. Mm -hmm. And we can either fight it and hold on to it in the Buddhist sense and, and, and resist it or, or grab onto it and say, no, this is not ending. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lay this down. I'm not going to let it go. And that can be a very painful proposition 
Um, or we can have this sense and awareness that maybe we're not attracted to this job or career any longer. And we develop a discipline and a practice that will permit us to recognize that we are in some turbulence. Um, this is uncomfortable, but we're going to have this discipline of what the monks at my monastery would call stability. There's a vow of stability where I'm going to, I'm going to push through this. I'm not going to give up. So there's a lot of discernment. In fact, you know, a lot of really great coaches, uh, and, and I'm sure you're one of them help people, not so much in, well, what's your next job going to be, but it's, why do you want another job? Why do you want to quit your job? What are you feeling? Do you need, do we need to help you double down in your, in your commitment of stability and staying through and, 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 and working through this discomfort mm -hmm. or, or are we at a place in your career where you really do need to lay it down and move to the next thing? And so for me, I was called to the law. I mean, it was, I, 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 you know, probably when I look back over my career, I was probably a better lawyer than chocolate maker. Um, you know, I was built for it. My dad was a lawyer before he died. Um, I grew up with it. I started working for a lawyer when I was in high school, when I got my driver's license, I was working in a law firm and, um, so it, it, it was very much a part of me. It didn't feel like work. This is kind of one of the tests, you know, that we talk to people about and it just, it just, it just didn't feel like work. Even the, the sort of minutia and the, you know, the, the sort of just toiling away that some would see it from the outside wasn't a struggle. You know, it was mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. And then, uh, a series of events led me to believe that that's no longer what I wanted to do, that I, I could sort of feel it. I had this awareness that we're talking about. I had an awareness that um, perhaps I needed to do something else. And then that awareness really grew stronger um, that I really needed to quit this. But that was a five-year journey between the moment of, huh, I think I probably shouldn't do this anymore I'm not feeling so good um, to starting the chocolate factory. That was every bit of five years. And uh, I still, I was still practicing law, still trying cases. And, <clears throat> and um, so then when I moved to this new career um, again, I have this sense that, you know, in, in fact, I was just thinking the other day, I've done chocolate almost as lo long as I did law already, you know, and um, who knows, I may, I might have another career of doing something else left in me. I probably do. I suspect I do. Um, but it's okay if I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, because I really believe that this, this was an answer to prayer um, for me, because prayer was a very big part of my five-year um, search. And, and this struggle was, was hard um, to find my way. It was very circuitous. It wasn't a straight line. And um, yeah, there was a moment. It was, it was at the end of a murder case and my client was um, 
this woman um, uh, ended up, um, the roles were reversed between protector, defender, me, you know, as lawyer, and her as the recipient of that protection and that defense and that shielding. And the roles were reversed in, in a matter of, you know, three minutes. She became a kind of um, comfort to me. So this was at the conclusion of very long, very high profile, very stressful, very emotional, really sad, tragic murder case. And my client was charged with first degree murder. And at the end of it, um, we were, you know, basically the judge decided that he was going to take the case away from the jury and put her on probation, which in America doesn't happen in murder cases. And um, anyway, she had, I, I was willing to keep fighting, you know, and, and, and take the case to the jury and let them decide. And, and uh, she was comforting me and letting me know that I'd done a good job and it was over and that this was going to be a good result. And that was a very, you know, unusual place for me to be. And uh, it was a tearful moment in the ante room off the outside of the courtroom. And uh, she hugged me and um, especially upon reflection, I know that that is the moment when, when it started for me. That's a very long answer to your question. Sorry, but yeah. No worries yeah. at all. I love the depth. That's exactly the goal of the podcast. And I'm just wondering the, can you remember really the emotion or maybe the thought that came to your mind in that moment where it clicked for you that you needed to change? Because earlier on you shared, you know, it's about finding this distinction between is this something to push through basically to get more stability mm -hmm. in or is it time mm -hmm. to change? At that moment when <clears throat> she was going to be, I was giving her the news that she was going to be put on probation if we decided to let the judge do this, or was I going to power through, go to the closing argument and let the jury decide, which the best case could have been her to go to a mental hospital for the rest of her mm -hmm. life. But the judge was going to literally send her home. She was going to go on probation, no jail. And when she hugged me and I was tearful, as I said, I cannot say in answer to your question that at that moment I said, it's over. I can't do this anymore. The emotion was one of, of where the walls came down for me without me willing them to come down. In other words, I didn't have control, which was not my normal state. My normal state of being was in control. I am the pilot. I will fly this thing through storms. You, my client, are a passenger. I will take care of you. Mm -hmm. But instead, you know, there was this, so there was the, 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 the walls just came down and I felt very um, kind of just open um, and I, I, I felt weak. I did. I felt weak and but I let it, I just let it flow, you know, and, and I just let it happen. <clears throat> In no way did I think when I, you know, left the courthouse that day, oh, 
boy, I guess I'm going to have to get a new job. It was a, over a period of time where the, and I think this is really common for driven, motivated people. We often don't get the message in the first wave because we, th we think, well, mm, that was just a little message. I don't think it really meant anything. And sometimes it takes multiple waves. And so it did for me. And so there were other times in the courtroom after that experience where I kind of felt a pain in my chest and I didn't know what it was and wasn't a heart attack. It was just panic. You know, I didn't know what a panic attack was. I didn't, I had no, I, I didn't, I, cause I didn't panic. I, I, I mean, in the, in the true sense of the word, but kind of a tightness in my chest and, and shortness of breath kind of, um, which can be kind of scary, but, um, you know, so that happened enough. And then, you know, and, and, and this is, this is kind of an interesting thing that I, I really have focused on more, you know, as I've meditated about this over the years, but at that time, as you mentioned, I had not lost a jury trial. Um, when you don't lose, there's a lot of expectation. <laughs> I mean, let me just say, there's a lot of pressure. If you don't lose whatever field you're in, you know, if you are at the top, then people want to hire you because they think that you can sprinkle magic dust over their problem and it will magically, you know, be resolved. And, it, and so I let that expectation wear me down too. And it sort of, it, it had an effect on me. I, I let, I let, I kind of let that get inside my head. And I, again, I don't think this is that uncommon. You know, we, we, we do these things. We think we're successful by all, by all outward expectations and standards. And maybe we are. And then that build that creates a lot of pressure to keep the record going, you know, yeah. and, um, and then we begin to sort of second guess ourselves and, and that, that can lead to problems. And it did for me. And so um, that, so it was, it was a, over a period of time. And then there was this gradual sort of, I don't like this feeling. It's kind of a body, mind, and spirit thing at this point. It was multiple waves, starting with the first one that I just described. And then this, and then it sort of peaked to me actually searching, you know, just what can I do next? Where, what can I find? I need another passion, another inspiration. I've got to find it. And then, and then, and then, and then when that wasn't happening, I ended up, you know, having to take antidepressants and see a psychologist and I had other health things going on and it was not fun. Yeah. And thankfully now you're here with your mm -hmm. vocation through that journey. And mm -hmm. you mentioned that big five year period and you outlined a couple steps that were really essential for you in the book on finding your personal vocation, finding that business vocation. And as I messaged you, the, the big things that really stood out to me that just hit me between the eyes because I needed to hear that myself. That first one of stop the endless research to unmask yeah. your sorrow and to serve selflessly. Those were really the huge distinctions that made such a big impact on me personally in my own search. And to me, it also seems like it's 
this unmasking of sorrow, which we're going to get to in a moment, seems to be the epicenter, basically, where open up space first by stopping the research and then leverage the sorrow unmask in the service. This is kind of how I'm seeing mm -hmm. it. But of course, I mm -hmm. want to let no, you No, I like the way you said that. I like that. Keep going. Yeah, keep what keep going. I like it. So that is basically how I'm seeing that big process that has really helped you figure out that vocation. Whereas I remember myself, I was sitting there like, what is the best business idea today? <laughs> what is the coolest thing to do? How will you yeah. get X? Yeah. And it just shifted completely how I'm looking for it, how I did start looking for it back then. And of course, it's still also a journey for me. I feel like I'm getting really close to it. And I just wanted to ask you, you already mentioned that the death of your father was the, the big, big sorrow for you. And that quote that you bring up multiple times by Khalil Gibran, our greatest joy is sorrow unmasked. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us how you personally unmasked your sorrow to find your vocation? Sure. And well, this is an interesting time that we would be talking because the anniversary date of my dad's death was yesterday. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so, you know, um, he, he, he was diagnosed with cancer, lung cancer when I was 12, as I mentioned, he was a lawyer and, uh, he was my hero and, um, very physically fit and, um, had been a Marine and um, so I was the oldest of a younger brother and it really fell upon me to help my mom take care of him, especially as he got sicker. And um, <clears throat> the, um, the cancer spread throughout his body and the real kind of trauma tragedy that happened right alongside this illness was the group from church would come over this prayer group. They would come over multiple times a week, sometimes to the house and they would lay hands on him and pray and pray that he would be healed. And the leader of the group, this man told me to never talk with my dad about death because if I did, it would be a sign of weakness and that he wouldn't be healed. So every time my dad tried to talk about it with me, I pushed him away and wouldn't let him talk about it. And so that was, that was a real tough one um, because I was with him when he died. Uh, cancer had gone to his brain and uh, he basically had a stroke. And I was at his bedside, my mom was too. And I, I had no idea he was gonna die then, no idea. And he just basically looked up and stopped breathing. And, you know, I was 14 years old and I was freaking out and I was begging God to not let him die, you know, out loud, just kind of screaming, you know, to God, please to help me in such desperation. And uh, so that was a long time ago. Um, I can tell you everything about that night, you know, second by second, what happened. Wow. And um, as I said, the, the anniversary of his death was yesterday. And um, well, um, 
you know, that was, that's, that's really hard. And about 21 years ago, I co-founded a grief center for children who've experienced the death of a loved one. It's called Lost and Found. I'm still very involved. And we've served thousands of children and families for free all around Southwest Missouri over these years, because I know that I wish I would have had something like that to help me with my grief after he died. But here's the thing. Um, it has been a long time, but in this, um, there are some things in our lives that are beyond space and time. And that, um, um, that have an effect on us, positive and negative, um, that we, we can experientially conclude this is not um, within space and time. And what I mean by that is the, like the, this grief, you know, this, this death of my father, um, it could have been a few seconds ago or a couple of minutes ago in my, in my heart, it could have been, you know, just a moment ago. This is true for many people who have experienced the death of a loved one or some other tragedy um, that has befallen them. It's, um, we, we know, we know to ourselves, I can be brought right back to that place um, very quickly. And one of the reasons is because I, I have this sense that, that um, really space and time are um, something we use as human beings to sort of um, um, filter it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of prism that our mind has created um, as a way to live and survive. And so that's why when something happens and it's really hard for us, we can be brought back to this place emotionally very quickly as I can with the death of my father. It wasn't that long ago, even though by our definition of years, it was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, um, after this murder case that I was telling you about earlier, I knew that I had to come to some kind of, I, I knew that I had to come to some place where I would have a conversation with myself about that grief in my life that I never had really addressed. I addressed it by winning, achieving, accomplishing mm -hmm. from the moment he died. I, I was, you know, there, when something like that happens to a young person, you can often really go one of two ways. One would be, you know, you know, drugs and crime and just a lot of trouble. And, and the other can be overachieving and push, push, push. And um, that's what I did. And I never looked back, you know, I just, I kept going, kept pushing, kept achieving, you know, even, you know, for all those years, for 25 years. And um, I knew after the conclusion of that case that I had to kind of turn and face it and, and sort of have this conversation with my broken heart. 
and I didn't know where to turn or what to do. And so I started talking to someone about it and all the while, you know, thinking I've got to do something different in my life. And as you said, I, like you, I, I, I Googled, you know, uh, my search term was what should I do with my life? That was my search phrase. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, I read books and I, and, and this is an example of where my lawyer skills actually were a detriment. And that's mm-hmm. because my lawyer skills were to never give up, uh, turn over every stone to find what you can by working and pushing through, finding answers, finding solutions. And so I read everything. I talked to everyone. I Googled everything. I was, you know, relentless using those research skills and problem solving skills of my head to solve this problem, to solve the equation. And for me, and for many others, I suspect, it, it didn't, it wasn't happening. It, it, I, 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 and, and, and maybe your question might be, well, why not? I mean, you probably found a bunch of jobs and a bunch of opportunities and a bunch of businesses that you could start. And that's true. I thought about a ton of businesses and buying franchises and all of these things, but they, they weren't um, really speaking to me in terms of inspiration, passion. I, I just, and that's hard to describe what that lack of feeling is like. Um, we all know what it feels like to have passion, to have inspiration, but when you don't have it, it's hard to describe what that feels like. Um, and that was the real problem for me. And that was, that's where the struggle really became what it felt almost impossible for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where I, and that's when I really kind of started just aimlessly <laughs> doing things. And, you know, and then I ended up really addressing my sorrow working at the hospital. Yeah. And then you mentioned, I think, I don't know quite exactly how the line goes in the book, but basically the deeper the sorrow, the more gold there is to mine. And then you manage to dig up that gold. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, it it, it can be, you know, the, the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. And so, yes, I did manage to just stumble into this, this opportunity that did not result from Google or reading a book. It was just, I was just walking in the, in the, um, near the grounds of the monastery, which is out in the middle of the wilderness, by the way, I mean, there's nothing around it. And I was just walking there and in my head, I kind of thought to myself, well, maybe I should volunteer to work at the hospital and um, work, you know, volunteer, do volunteer work with people who are dying in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so I went back home and I did that. I found a way to volunteer in the palliative care department of this hospital, which is kind of like hospice, um, but it's in the hospital setting where people are in various stages of dying. 
And I volunteered <clears throat> to work and I worked with those people on Fridays for a long time. Whenever I was in town, I did this work. And this was, this was the, um, this was the key that unlocked the door. This was it. This was it. And people are now probably wondering from that realization and from that feeling, the connection to the chocolate and creating that. Is it, was it also a feeling that called you that you listened to or, or were there other insights, feelings, thoughts that came up for you as you were making that transition? The, my, my, my sorrow was very specific to me. You know, we've been talking in this conversation about <clears throat> And we talked at the beginning about this notion of individuality. Mm -hmm. And while on the one hand, we are all connected, all of us. And I was looking up right before I connected to the podcast link that <clears throat> the estimate is that of in all time, there have been 108 billion humans on this planet and <clears throat> we're all connected beyond the boundaries of space and time. Yet we also have individual souls or we could call it true nature or as Thomas Merton would call it a true self. And So my, my true nature, my true self <clears throat> did experience this very unusual kind of grief. You know, my dad was my hero. He was sick. I was told not to talk with him about death and I was with him when he died and the church and all of this. And it was, you know, kind of unusual. And so I, ne I, I, I needed to find a very specific meeting place with that. 25 years later, it was a very unique, a uniquely suited broken heart meeting a very unique opportunity to serve. It was like this hand in glove. So when I go to the hospital and I knock on your door and you're laying there and you don't have any visitors or family and I'm just a volunteer and you are dying maybe not actively, or maybe you are, um, but, or maybe, maybe, you know, you have a terrible terminal diagnosis. Maybe you're going to die in a few days or a few weeks and I'm there and you can talk. And I talk to you about whatever you want to talk about, just conversation, if you can speak. And then before I leave, I ask you if you want me to pray for you and uh, don't ever force it on people. Everyone said, yes, sure. And then this was the key. So the, 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 the key is even deeper than just going to the hospital. I would say this, I would say, Lucas, what would you like me to pray for, for you? That would open up a whole other conversation. And you might say, Sean, would you, would you pray that my family is okay after I die? Would you please pray that I die today because I'm in pain 
or pray that I'm healed, pray that I live. I would ask you, um, I would listen to you and I would say, is it okay if I hold your hand or can I touch your shoulder? And you would say yes. And I would close my eyes and I would repeat your words back to you as a prayer. And in that moment, I would not think about me. I would think about you. And what I found is that I think about me a lot. Um, I did then, I do now. But those were moments that I didn't think about me for just a tiny little moment. And in thinking about you, this, this mystery unfolded, which was bigger than me. And it, it, so that moment in time stretched out, you know, it kind of elongated my wound up tight. I must research. I must find the answer to this problem, you know, kind of, you know, personality. And it, it, it unwound me. It loosened me up. It, it elongated everything and it gave me space. You know, there was all, there, there, there was just all of this space for me to move around in and and I, I I wouldn't notice that until after I would leave your room and maybe after I'd leave the hospital that day. But when when you do that enough, you build this space over time that will permit all kinds of things for you to notice and be aware of that you never saw before. You never thought about being a sock maker, you love socks now and you want to make socks. I never thought about that. Or, you know, I want to be a shepherd or I want to, you know, be a forester or I want to be a teacher. I would have never thought about that. It's a way for that. That's what I've been saying in our conversation. You know, we, we can open ourselves up, but we can't do it through books. We can't do it through um, Google and we do it. I think not, not, I should, let me just qualify, not we, all of us, some people. So those of your listeners who resonate with what I'm saying, what we're talking about right now, this idea of a broken heart and how can I meet my own broken heart um, by serving someone else in that same space where my own heart broke? How can I do that? And you're, you're thinking, well, but is, the, is this a whole ends means thing? Because that, that seems sort of selfish. No, it's not. I'm not saying that we do these things in order to achieve a new business idea. I'm saying we let ourselves go. We serve somebody who needs us in that space. And we do it with expecting nothing. Nothing. Not a darn thing. And that's when, paradoxically, this mystery unfolds. And we can see it. Yeah. The clouds begin to part for a moment. Yeah. So the very big challenge to everybody listening who's looking for that meaningful work, how can you open up space 
in service to others to figure out your true authentic self in the process. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. And, and I would add, let me just also say, and I'm not just saying this because you're a coach, but, and I'm not a coach, but you are, if I were in your position and you've, you had a client who, who, you, who in conversation and in discussion, you determined did in fact have a broken heart. And it's possible that this broken heart is something that they're, they're struggling with and mm-hmm. uncomfortable and there's discomfort and pain and suffering. And you're able to uncover that. Then actually, I believe that the role of a coach in this scenario can be quite powerful because it's not giving the client the answer uh, which often they want. Believe me, I get emails all the time that literally say, tell me what I should do. Um, and uh, or words to that effect. And I believe that the role of the coach here can be quite transformative because a coach can come alongside this person and help them find a place or a way to face this sorrow in complete awareness of the pain and suffering, yet facing it and realizing that it's possible that, that, that some joy and creativity and rebirth can occur through this pain and this, this suffering and sorrow. Yeah, I can absolutely agree the necessity of also having somebody there. And I know in your story, you've had mentors and people who have helped you there too, who listen to you without judgment and who want the best for you and who are willing to challenge you, whether that's a professional coach or just a great mentor, that's Mm -hmm. essential. I agree. Yes. Sean, this is such a wonderful conversation. I could talk to you for hours, but I know we're getting a little bit up to our time limit. So I want to just make a little bit of a jump into your business, into Eskinosi Chocolate. And there's one big principle that brought up a real question for me right now that I also hope will be useful to everybody listening who's also dedicated to their master's journey. And I wrote this down really carefully because I want to make sure I get this right. One of the principles that I found so inspiring in your book and just so challenging in terms of raising questions about life in general is this notion of how much is enough in entrepreneurship in life. And the honest struggle that I'm dealing with here that I want to open up about is on the one hand, it's truly my ambition to do the greatest possible good with the time that I've been given. And I feel like that is my duty. And I know your faith is important to you. So I always also think about it in terms of seek ye first the kingdom of God, that big, big ambition. But that thinking also creates that belief that anything except number one, the biggest, the largest, the brightest is a failure. And that ambition just becomes a huge, huge judge. But on the other hand, it also feels like letting go of that is kind of betraying the duty I feel to the divine, let's say. 
And I know this is really big picture, but I was wondering, since you also shared that in law and in your story, there's kind of the path of crime and there's the path of just overachieving to deal with that sorrow. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on creating harmony between those two things, because it seems like you are. This is a great question. <clears throat> This, this question of how much is enough is, I recognize, a luxury. You know, even being able to ask that question, I am, mm -hmm. I am, I am uh, offered this, the the chance to even ask this question because I have shelter, I have food, um, I have access to medical care. And so not everyone is so fortunate. And when I travel around the world buying cocoa beans, which I did, you know, in the before times, every year to go meet with farmers in Tanzania, Philippines, Ecuador, Amazon. <clears throat> I am struck, however, by the depth which with which people in poverty that I have met would not know overtly, or maybe they would, that they're asking this question in some form or another. I, I can think um, particularly in the tribal culture of Tanzania that I have been visiting now for 11 years in one particular farmer group that they have resisted, you know, growth and wanting more and more and more. And I find when I visit, you know, this massive amount of joy in their lives, despite not having all of the things that I have. And I have thought about this for years. How is it that they seem so much happier so much more joyful than me. And they live in a grass hut with a mud floor. Now I'm not so naive to think that they don't believe me have painful struggles. So I'm not suggesting otherwise. What I am saying is that maybe it's best typified. <clears throat> I remember seeing a choir in a church in Tanzania not what you would think of when you think church. I mean, it again was a mud floor and the choir in Swahili, they were singing the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I remember, this was a long time ago when I saw this choir, but I have a video of them singing that. And I've never seen a group of people say something like that, I shall not want and mean it like they did. Mm -hmm. And when I compare that with the monastery where I go, this Trappist monastery, and they make fruitcakes to survive. And of course, the monasteries in Europe, the same way, um, the, the, you know, Benedictine monasteries in Europe, they all follow the rule of Benedict and the rule of Ben, and they've been following it for 1500 years. That's one of the longest 
running continuous management documents in place. Um, and the core concept behind all of the governing of monasteries around the world is this notion of a sufficiency economy. And this is, this is not new to the monks, it's new to us. Um, and the sufficiency economy is this, is this question, how much is enough? And, and I'm not a monk and I'm not, you know, I am not selling chocolate so that I can have a monastery. So I'm not laboring under that kind of illusion, but um, I am asking this question often and regularly, how much is enough? And it's important to note for your listeners who might find this intriguing is to, to know and, and again, realize that this, the answer to this question changes throughout our lives. That's okay. You know, how much is enough when I'm 30 is going to be different than when I'm 60. It's, and it's okay. The, the important thing is to ask the question. So many people don't even ask the question. Mm -hmm. What they do finally, and well, in some cases, they will realize that more is not enough. It's never enough. But if we can ask ourselves the question, you know, how much is enough Facebook followers or how much is enough podcast downloads? How much is enough clients for me to have or chocolate bars to sell? Um, then it will help us answer these questions so that we can accomplish the things that we want to accomplish, like, you know, cash flow, debt service, buying group health insurance for our employees, um, doing good in the world. And this, you know, we just built a preschool in Tanzania 13 months ago. We paid for the whole thing. And wow. uh, the farmers wanted early childhood education. It was part of their vision. And they're running it. So we don't manage the school, they do. Um, and I spend time on that, you know, periodically every week. Well, I could probably spend that same time and sell more chocolate bars if I wanted, but I, I choose not to do that. But I want to really emphasize that this notion, I'm, I'm so happy that you used the word harmony because it isn't a balance. And it's that's a little bit different. Harmony is is the willingness to accept the jagged edges or in this Japanese notion of design, wabi-sabi, mm -hmm. you know, that, 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 that is also in other cultures of, of design, but it's accepting the, the so-called defects as in fact, the real treasure. And um, that, I mean, I, I struggle with it to this day but I at least ask the question, you know, it's a part of my practice and it does not come without some sacrifice. And the reason that I'm willing to do it is because there is a payoff for it. There is a payoff. Um, and the payoff is a deepening awareness and understanding of of the divine for me, for others, it might be something else, but it's a, it's a place of connection for me. Mm -hmm. 
And so am I suggesting that connection and divinity are mutually exclusive from massive scale in uncontrolled growth? No, I, of course not. I think I'm sure there are examples where people who led companies that grew massively and they became wildly wealthy billionaires that they were able to remain connected to the divine and deepen that connection. I'm sure there are examples. I'm just saying for me, for me, I need to stay, um, I need to stay lean and I need to stay dependent. And by dependent, I mean on others, on my friends, on my mentors, my teachers, and ultimately on God. Um, for me, and when I do that, and it remains a practice, then I'm reminded of the important things in my business, and I am reminded of how much is enough. So it's a circle. You know, they all um, feed each other um, in this path that I'm on. Thank you, Sean, truly. This is just such a joy talking to you. I hope we can do part two at some point. Sure. For now, just want to ask you, I'm going to link to your book, of course. I'm going to link to Ask Nosy Chocolate in the show notes. Is there any other spot, any other link that you want to share to send people to who are interested in learning more about you? Uh, no, I have a little blog that I do, you know, maybe twice a year, three times a year, um, seanaskinosi.com. It's also a way for people to get a hold of me through that um, website, seanaskinosi.com. There's a place for people to email me if they have questions. And I just, I just wanted to, to one final thought as people may be listening and say, well, you didn't even talk about chocolate. What does this have to do with chocolate? You didn't talk about chocolate bars or anything. Let me just say this. Every single thing everything that we've been talking about in this previous hour has to do with chocolate. All of it has to do with chocolate. And hopefully if we ever speak again and have another conversation like this, I can go into details about what that means. But I, but I assure you that what we've been talking about has to do with chocolate. <laughs> That's a cliffhanger. It's not about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sean, the very final question that I've been asking every single person on this podcast and that I'm so excited to be asking you is what question has made the biggest difference in your life? That question would be, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Where is your pain? Where is your pain? If I could ask entrepreneurs only one question, just one question to, in order to help get through this and come alongside them, I would ask them that, where does it hurt? Boo. <laughs> Sean Eskinozzi, everybody. Thank you so, so much, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love these questions. Great questions. Thank you. And there you have it, my friend. Congratulations for taking another step on your master's journey. We hope you enjoyed this episode and got a lot 
from it to improve your life and work. If you did, please consider taking just one action to help us spread the value. Who do you know who could really benefit from this content right now? Take a screenshot of the episode, share it with three people that come to mind today and be the one who keeps them inspired and growing. Or leave us a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Any one of these actions takes less than 60 seconds, but one single aha moment could change everything for another person. And if you also want to help me out personally, this would be an incredibly generous way to do so. You can find show notes with timestamps, links, quotes, and other details we talked about in this episode at lucaskramer.net slash the number 24. That's L-U-K-A-S-K-R-A-M-E-R dot net slash two four. Now that I've got Amy Jules on the Masters Journey team, we're also creating and testing new plans for Instagram to bring you even more value, to help you push through obstacles, generate momentum, and discover new insights about yourself and life in general. So make sure you're following us at Lucas K. Kramer. It would be an honor to share the journey with you over there as well. And when you get to the Instagram page and you want to share a question or an aha moment you experience, or you simply want to connect, just send me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. As always, the master's journey never stops and it's getting more and more exciting. We've got more incredible guests coming up and we're continuously working on new big projects for you. But for now, Thank you so much for listening. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Enjoy the other episodes and see you super soon.